it was life changing because it, you know, for one, it was like losing a child. I mean, I'm, this was over five years ago. I, I still grieve every day for that dog. That animal inspires me every single day to be a better veterinarian, to help people, to be the person that my dog thought I was. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Julie, who is a marine mammal veterinarian, which is one of the coolest possible jobs that I could imagine having. But uh, Dr. Julie kind of talks me off the ledge and explains to me some of the the not-so-glamorous things about being a marine mammal veterinarian, um, despite what we would all think. Dr. Julie is actually of some fame. If any of you are familiar with the Disney movies Dolphin Tale or Dolphin Tale 2, those are two movies that are about two of the dolphins that she helped rescue and save. So the first Dolphin Tale movie is actually pretty miraculous. Um, She and her team saved a dolphin off the coast of Florida that um, that ended up needing to get its tail amputated. And normally you would have to just put a dolphin like that down. But she managed to uh, reach out to and work with a team of prosthetic specialists that make prosthetic limbs for soldiers coming home from war. And they made a prosthetic dolphin tail for this dolphin. And uh, this dolphin is now still alive and kicking and has a fully successful prosthetic tail, thanks to Dr. Julie and her team. Um, so anyways, Dr. Julie is just a pretty incredible person and has a, has a pretty incredible job. And we talk about all kinds of cool things and animals that she works with and crazy things like doing surgery on seahorses and stuff like that. So without further ado, here is Marine Mammal Veterinarian. Dr. Julie, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, Blake. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I am so excited to hear about what you do. First of all, when I was a little kid, there's nothing that I wanted to be more than uh, like an oceanographer or like a marine biologist or something like that. And I, I like so me personally, I, I just can't wait to hear about it. But I imagine as well that and correct me if I'm wrong, that most people, when they meet you and they ask, like, what do you do for a living? And you say, I'm a Marine. Well, first of all, what do you say? Do you say Marine Mammal Veterinarian or what do you say? Well, I, I say I'm a veterinarian, but my expertise is mostly in a large aquatic mammals. But I also, in my career, do anything from dogs to cats to seahorses to very large whales. So, it's to seahorses. You, know, you have to work yeah. on seahorses. That's <laughs> I incredible. I've actually done surgery on a seahorse of all things, and they're one of my favorite animals. But I, uh, you know, you name it, I've probably worked on it at least a little bit. Oh my god! And I'm but, even more excited now. I, I, <laughs> oh, I, I can't wait to delve in. So I, I imagine that when most people, uh, when you're meeting somebody. And you say, you know, I'm a veterinarian and I work with large aquatic animals or whatever it is that that people have so many follow up questions and that they don't assume that they know what you do. Like, I I think most jobs and and most of the jobs that I've had on this show, even like the point of this show is to really shed light on what somebody actually does for a living or for a hobby or whatever it is. So, like, for instance, I had a DJ on if if you were to if somebody were to tell you, like, oh, I'm a DJ, no one's going to ask you, like, 
what, oh my God, what, like, how do you do that? Like, people just assume, like, okay, you play music, got it, you know, like, I understand what you do, but I imagine right. when you say, I'm a marine mammal veterinarian, or whatever it is you say, like, that no one assumes they know what you do. Like, everyone assumes, holy crap, I have no idea what she does, and I need to learn more about her right now. They do, and they, a lot of people, when they first hear that, I think, get excited and think, oh my gosh, you get to swim with dolphins, which is actually not true. <laughs> um, in fact, we have a saying is the vet doesn't get wet. And it's kind of a joke in the industry. But, you know, you, you're you're not really, you can get in there and swim with them. But that's more just for fun with you, for you. Right. But it's very rare that you're in there having this, you know, magical moment that everyone pictures where you're, you know, swimming with the dolphins and fixing them that way. It's, 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 that makes sense because I guess most of the different. time, yeah, if you're doing like a surgery, obviously that animal needs to be taken to a proper place for that. But do you ever do like sure. routine physicals or just like a checkup where you then do have to kind of swim with them and just check out some vitals and stuff? Oh, absolutely. You do. But most of the time, and, and it really, in my career, I've spent most of my time working on, on wild marine mammals, but I have done, I have worked on some that were in rehab or in managed care, you know, permanent managed care. And in those cases, you know, you, you, it's, it's just like a human. It's just like any animal. You, you, you do give them a physical exam. And generally, you don't. You want to be on a platform so you can you have access to the animal. You're not really – it's a little difficult to do in the water because they're, they're you know, they're in deeper water. Than, I'm pretty short. Yeah. <laughs> so most of it – most of the water is over my head. But if there are, you know, certain platforms you can stand on, but – and you do the same things just like you would with any animal. Listen to their heart and lungs, look at their eyes, look at their body condition, look at their skin, you know, really observe and, and look at all their different body parts, just like you would a person or a dog or a cat or even a seahorse. <laughs> right. But you're just specialized to know exactly what that animal's eyes are supposed to look like or what sorts exactly. of responses they're supposed to have to what you're doing. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, for instance, like in a dolphin, you know, their eyes have a certain look, their, their heart rate and their respiration rates, how many times they're taking a breath out of their blowhole. Those are all, they're all standards for those specific species and those animals that, that you have in mind when you're, when you're, when you're doing an exam, their body temperature, they have really, you know, I could talk all day just about adaptations and marine mammals cause it's really fascinating, but yeah. You know, they, they don't have a standard body temperature like, you know, humans are 98.6, whereas they uh, they thermoregulate. So depending on the time of year, depending on the water temperature, they will adjust their body temperature. They'll, they'll dump heat from their extremities and they will, um, you know, they'll, their temperature will be different throughout different parts of their body. And that's how they maintain their homeostasis. That's incredible. So, so it's really it's it's really amazing that what they can adapt because they're living in water. So you have to think about when you're in the water, you can get pretty cold pretty quick, even in you know eighty degree water. Your your body loses heat so quickly. Yeah. And so they've had to adapt to that. Do do the animals get like sick? Like can can a dolphin like catch a cold or get the flu or is it only like major major medical things that happen with them? No, I mean, absolutely, they can get sick. You know, one of the most common things we see, especially like in beached animals, is they have respiratory issues. And, and 
it, it kind of makes sense, right? So their blowhole or their nose is right on, you know, right on the top of their heads. And that's the main part of their body that's being exposed to the elements. And right, so right. whatever's going on in the environment, you know, and, and their location, it's going to go right there to their lungs. Um, so they do, they, you know, the thing we need to remember is that they're wild animals and in order to survive in the wild, they have to mask that they are sick. So there it's when you're, when you're treating an animal or you're, you're looking at an animal, whether it's wild or whether they're in managed care, you have to know certain things to look for because they can hide it. So they may not look physically outwardly sick, but they could be extremely ill. And that's why we do things like blood work or we take fluid samples from their, their blowhole or, or their, their general regions or, or their gastric, their stomach samples. And, and we often can find signs of, of what we call subclinical disease through looking at looking for certain, certain key uh, tests. That man, I that makes you sense. Literally just like <laughs> blew my mind. I have never ever <laughs> thought about that before, and I never thought about to what extent we are complete wusses as people. Like, if I like <laughs> stub my toe or bump my funny bone, like everyone around me is going to know about it. You know, like oh, I'm sure. going to I'm going to let people know that there is like a major problem occurring right now. And yet, an animal, if they get like sliced, like lacerated with something or whatever it is, like they oh, need right. to maintain their cool and not show the fact that they're hurt. Otherwise, now predators are going to come around. I have never Absolutely. thought about that in my entire life. That's incredible. No, it's absolutely true. They need, I mean, and, and you think about it, they, you know, pain is a very subjective thing. And, and I have no doubt that these animals feel pain, but they, I think their tolerance is probably a little bit higher than your average human because it has to be. And, you know, just, just, just the sheer fact they don't have hands, right? So how do they, how do they communicate with, with each other? How do they get another one's attention? Oftentimes they'll use their teeth and they'll, they'll what, do what we call rake. They'll put rake marks, you know, little lines on the other animals. So whether it's aggression, whether it's just getting someone's attention, like, hey, so imagine someone taking their teeth or their nails and scraping them down the side of your body. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't feel too good, but they're not going to get sick and, and die from that, you know, mostly. So it's, it's, it's kind of all these little nuances about them that you don't think about. And, and it's because they, you know, and they need to survive in the wild and the wild is a tough place. So what are most of the different ways that these animals communicate? So you mentioned raking. I imagine the different noises that they make. Right. They all have what we call, well, you know, this goes mainly for your marine mammals, your whales and your dolphins. They have their, what we call signature whistles. So they each have a name, if you will, that, that they are, are given when they're younger by their pod and, and they use those sounds and those clicks and those noises to communicate with each other. So um, they also use echolocation. So, you know, when they're out hunting, basically they, they don't they don't have a sense of smell like we do. They can't smell their food. They can see it, but they also see with sound, which I think is really just a, a you know, I get really excited about these things. I think it's such a fascinating adaptation. I yeah. mean, basically, you know, they have an internal ultrasound. So just like, a, you know, a pregnant woman, you put the ultrasound out and that's how you see the baby. They have their own internal ultrasound where they send out a signal, say, oh, you know, 500 yards away, there's a really large fish and this is how big it is. And the signal comes back and they know exactly what's there. 
and how big it is, whether it's their prey, whether it's a predator that they're trying to avoid. And it's, um, that, that's just so, it's just so also mind blowing. Like it's, it's, (laughs) it's just incredible that that, that the sound waves would be able to get bounced back to them from that sort of distance and underwater. And that's, that's insane. Yep, it's it's amazing, and they have they have you know special fat pads in their jaws that, that absorb these signals and help to bounce off their signals in their head, and so it's it's really a it's just a it's a really it's a really cool way that nature has had these animals adapt to survive and in, in the environment that they've been given. Yeah, do we have any sort of estimate? Like, has anyone ever put anything together in terms of what we think? that looks like for them like when they're using echolocation with their eyesight and stuff like that like how what this all kind of comes together like for them oh absolutely there i personally am not an expert in echolocation but there are there are tons and tons of researchers out there that they specifically study this adaptation and and know a tremendous a lot a tremendous amount about it and um studies of the dolphin whale brains and and there are still on ongoing research projects out there. I mean, I think anybody could could go in, onto Google Scholar and probably find hundreds of articles just on echolocation. I would I'd be shocked if it, if that wasn't the case. And yeah. in, in my career, what I've what I've learned is first every day, every every amount of information that I learn, I realize how much I don't know <laughs> about these animals. Yeah, and absolutely. So it's, it's exciting because it's it's a career that you are constantly learning and and developing new knowledge and learning new things. Yeah, so good to be in a field like that. What do you think it, like what are some of the top things that you feel like you ever learned in this field? Like where when you learn them it just flipped your world upside down or blew your mind or whatever. Oh geez. That's a <laughs> that's a tough question. Do you mean just about about the animals specifically yeah like about about a particular animal like for instance i remember uh like however long ago all that information started coming out about uh or like more concrete information started coming out about orca whales killer whales and the fact that they like love each other and like the amount to which that they care and whatever else like what sorts of i guess discoveries have you made whether it be like physical and and just like completely medical or like an emotional thing or whatever it is with Hmm. some of these animals that you're like wow and it just gave you so much insight Gosh, there, there's so many things. I, you know, I, I've spent uh, the larger the part of my career thus far studying dolphins in Florida and and their pods in the Indian River Lagoon, which is a huge estuary body down the center in South Florida. And the the river is ex- where they live is extremely extremely polluted. I mean. I, I wouldn't eat anything that came out of this water system. And what, what always struck me as amazing is that these animals are living in this water, this this polluted, this dirty water every day, and they're surviving and they're reproducing and they're they're getting by. And they're not the healthiest because we know that from our research and they may not live as long, but, but their immune systems have, have developed so strong that they're, they're able to live. They're able to live in this this soup of pollution that humans have caused. Yeah. And it's just, it's amazing to me that animals can, can adapt that way. But also, you know, I think what's really interesting on, on a more, you know, positive note is, is their, their social structure. 
So the males pair bond. They they bond up and they'll stay together for life sometimes and they'll separate and go and breed and then they'll come back and hang out with their buddies and that's, that's so cool. I mean sometimes you just got to have a beer with your homies, you exactly. know, you got to get away you gotta for a have minute. Your homies and and they do that and then on on the flip side the females they'll form nursery groups. So they'll be preg- all pregnant around the same time and and maybe have ca- a younger calf and maybe one's pregnant and one will go off and get food and the other ones will will watch the the younger animals so they they form almost a nursery system and it's 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 it's, it's a pretty cool thing that these animals are doing in the wild and it's much like people do yeah that and shows such a high a level of, of species. intelligence to to do that absolutely absolutely so it's you know little things like that always fascinate me because you know here are these beautiful wild animals and they're they're doing you know very normal and i use that term loosely but normal things just like just like you'd see in any species yeah. so so dr julia what age did you know that you wanted <laughs> to do this and like how how did this all start to happen for you <laughs> well it's it's a little bit of a long story but i'll give the cliff notes version i've i've wanted to be a vet since i can remember like two three years old i you know whenever whenever i learned discovered what it, what it meant to be a veterinarian that's what i knew i wanted to do and what really inspired me is as a little girl i had you know my first my first pet was a german shepherd and you know i was so little and he was so big i would ride on his back which is probably horrible that but is super cute <laughs> we were very bonded and i i remember like it was yesterday it's probably one of the only memories i have from being that young that he, he got sick and we were in the car and we went to the vet and he went in and he didn't come out. And I was too young. I didn't understand death. I didn't un- certainly didn't understand humane euthanasia. I just knew that my dog went to the vet and he wasn't coming home. And I was devastated. And it was in that moment that I decided I wanted to be a veterinarian so that no other animals would have to be put to sleep. And unfortunately, that's, that's a huge part of my job. With, with all species, but it was that moment that really inspired me to pursue my, my dream and my passion. So at, at nine years old, I started washing dogs at my local vet hospital and volunteering that, again, when they would let me. That is super cute. That is like the cutest <laughs> thing I've ever heard. And, and I worked my way up, and so I, I had a, a couple really... <laughs> at nine um, years old, so what, like at 10 years old, you're now... Uh... Sure. <laughs> I, I was in there cleaning cages and washing dogs because it's all, you know, nowadays the liabilities and they don't let you do stuff like that when you're that young. But back then, you know, the, the little small town veterinarians were like, okay, sure, kid, come on in here and free labor. And, and uh, you know, I, I worked really hard and... and stayed doing this over the years. And as I got a little bit older, they'd let me do a little bit more. So once I was, you know, probably an early teenager, I was allowed to go in the clinic side and observe and, and help out and, and had to learn all all the, the down and dirty things. I didn't just get to go in and watch surgeries or help the doctor and assist. I had to do really scrub the floors and, and work my way up. And, uh, Growing up, I grew up in uh, between Massachusetts and South Florida, so always surrounded by water. And in that developmental time, I certainly I began to really develop a love and a care for the ocean and the environment. And that's where the aquatic part came in. So it was really kind of a natural 
progression in, in my life is that I would combine my love of the oceans and nature and the environment with my love of animals. And it was kind of like, wow, you know, what a perfect fit. When I discovered that was actually a job, Yeah, it was I, it was something I knew I had to do or it had to be a part of my, my career. That is such a long history with that. That's amazing. <laughs> it, it is. And it's, it's weird because I often think back like, no, I never really considered doing anything else. Other, I always knew I was going to be a veterinarian or I knew that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, that's, it's pretty scary to just keep yourself that, you know, one-sided because what if you don't get in vet school? What if it doesn't work out? What if, you know, what if, you know, so many what ifs. And when I was applying to colleges, I, you know, stopped for a moment and thought, well, maybe I should apply to a, a law school or something just, just so I have, you know, just in case. And yeah, so and, that's, that's something I wanted to ask about. Mm-hmm. I, I guess like to, uh, to quote our, our former governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's your daddy and what does he do? Like what, what did your parents do that this seemed like this, uh, good attainable path for you? As I said, when I was younger, I was just so fascinated by marine life but it, it, like both my parents were in business and, and it, I mean, you know, at, at one time they would tell me like, you know, oh, you can do whatever you want when you grow up. But it's, I don't know, like, you know, when you kind of see a lot of people in business, it's like, okay, well, I guess we got to be practical here. We just got to do business stuff, you know? Um, what did your parents do and like, how did that <laughs> influence what was going on for you? Um, you know, they had not, they, I, there are no doctors in my family. They, I, I, I don't think... I don't know where it came from. I was, I was never pushed to do it. I was never, you know, discouraged. It was just kind of like, oh yeah, you know, Julie, Julie's the animal par- person. She's the vet, you know, <laughs> I always had, she just I always cleaning had pets. those cages. Yeah. I always had pets growing up and my, my first patient, I came home one day, I was maybe 12 years old or 13. I, I found a little baby lizard, you know, cause they're everywhere in Florida and it was this tiny, tiny, like, microscopic almost sized baby lizard and had this big old red ant which are we have rampant here in florida and it was attached to his leg how i found it i don't know i was playing with my friends and i brought it home and made a little shoe box for it and got asked my parents for some tweezers and removed the ant and had a little infirmary in my garage and that was (laughs) it was just a normal thing it was just kind of you know i i don't know if you believe in in having a calling, I, I, I guess that's really the only way to to explain you know how it happened because it wasn't there there weren't that there weren't any real influences in my life that that pushed that or drove that. I mean, there was support, and you know, of course, I had to get to the clinic somehow, and I couldn't ride my bike, and I couldn't drive yet, but. But that's it's so cool it, it's yeah. <laughs> it's it's honestly incredible like so uh, you know so many people say things like oh well i always wanted to do this or like i always mm-hmm. knew or or you know i was on this path to do this but really like that's for most people that's not true with the exception of like athletes or something like right. that that you know were playing a sport when they were six years old and yet like at nine you actually were really on this path to becoming a vet like i wonder how right. many vets could even say that that's that's so incredible yeah i don't know i mean there's a few there's a few of us that you know occasionally we'll talk you know you spend I mean, it's eight years of college but veterinary school is is four years and you spend four years with the same people and they become your family and 
you go through war together and, and you talk and get to know them. And, you know, I had several classmates that were like, oh, being a vet just sounded like a cool thing to do. And they were, you know, straight A students with photographic memories. So, of course, they're going to get in. But I, what was really interesting is I also had classmates that were in their 40s and 50s that had had whole careers, but they'd always wanted to be a vet. And they finally said, you know what, I'm doing it. And they quit their jobs and they went back to vet school. And so it's, you know, I think it's it's really interesting to look at how people end up in that path because, you know, maybe like you said, as a kid, I, you know, always wanted to study marine biology or be a doctor or be a vet, but how many people actually go and do that? Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's hard to say, but I think probably, you know, there's probably quite a few in, in, in just in the veterinary profession in general. Now, the marine mammal profession is completely different. That's, you know, I didn't grow up saying I wanted to do that, but I, I grew up taking environmental camps and, and learning about the ocean. So it's, uh, you know, maybe kids nowadays are growing up and saying they want to be dolphin vets or marine vets because I think it's it's there's a lot it's a lot more in the forefront now. I mean, there's there's uh, three of my patients were in two feature films, you know, so and who would have thought? So it's you know there's more information nowadays and out there and more people that are interested in it and 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 working to do it. So you just perfectly transitioned this interview for me. That's so funny. The next question that I wanted to ask you about was to go kind of into your career path. I know that you have worked on um, some dolphins that were in the movies. Mm -hmm. how, I was going to ask like how that all came about. Like it, the, you are now this like Hollywood vet. <laughs> uh, it did, it, but I, it sounds like maybe the dolphin you knew the dolphin prior. Or how did it all work? I did so. My my career at the time was rescuing and rehabbing, which I guess I still do now, but I was working for an organization that primarily what we did is we responded to um, beached, beached marine mammals on the southeast coast of Florida. And, you know, I, there was a little baby dolphin named Winter that my organization responded to. Well, she wasn't named Winter at the time. She was just a a, a baby dolphin in a really bad way and uh she we rescued her and brought her to a rehab facility and worked on her and lo and behold five years later or however long it was there she is and <laughs> there's a feature film being made about her and then 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 the same thing happened again with another dolphin named hope that was you know we got a call and i have to back up by saying that as glamorous as it as this profession can sound, it is not glamorous. <laughs> and when you're on call, it's going to happen when you're on the way to the movies, when you're just getting to bed, when you're finally sitting down with that glass of wine for the evening, you're going to get a call. And it's going to be inconvenient, and it's going to be at night probably and cold and on a holiday. <laughs> yeah. Some of the almost all the major animal rescues that I've been involved in were on birthdays, Christmas, after I hadn't slept for a week. <laughs> so you're saying when you get a call about an animal that, that's like beached or something like that, that mm -hmm. you, you have to be part of the team to go and get it. Correct. That, 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 that was my primary job then. Wow. And so, so these, you know, the winter, probably one of the most famous dolphins now next to, next to Flipper is, you know, she was one of those dolphins that I uh, helped was involved in the rescue and helped with their transport. And then 
for your listeners that know about the story, she has the prosthetic tail and I was a part of that team that helped develop this. And she, you know, it's, it's, it's just kind of weird for me. It was weird that here's a major amazing feature about my life, about something that I was involved in. And then again, in, in the second film, another little baby dolphin named hope, same thing. And so it's, it, it was just circumstance that, these were these were animals I had worked on that I had been involved in, and their stories were were pretty remarkable. That you know Hollywood took notice, and and there you go. <laughs> so, do you so, just work with like the the actors and the director, trying to let them know what's up with your dolphins, or are you do you, do they need you around kind of for the entire shoot of the movie to be working with the dolphins as well? Well. What, uh, for like for the first film, you know, by the time they were they were shooting and, and working on it, you know, Winter's rehab, you know, th- that had already happened. She was already in her her permanent home because when a I'll just back up and say when a when a baby dolphin beaches without its mother it can never be released. It it can't. Wow. It, it has no one to teach them how to survive in the wild that's how important that bond is. And, and, you know, whereas some animals they're born and, and they're look at their parents, see, ya, I don't need you anymore. They can survive, you know, calves, baby dolphins will stay with their, with their mothers for, you know, sometimes up to seven years. And they, they need to learn these things, how to survive, how to hunt, how to, how to work in their social groups. And so a single stranded baby dolphin doesn't have that luxury. And so they, they need, they need they need constant care and and they become you know they need someone that that can take care of them and make sure that they survive so So what sorry to to like do a side question here really quick and so what usually (laughs) happens to them for like the entirety of their lives like i mean there's all this um because of of blackfish the movie there's all Mm -hmm. this stuff about you know things like sea world and whatever else like how do you just contain something that large for the entirety of its life like where is it kept well, it, it, I mean, and that's a great question. And it, it, it just, it depends. It, it depends on the laws in the area. So for instance, it, and this could be a whole podcast too, because you mentioned the, the blackfish, which is very controversial. But for instance, in the, in the Northeast part of the United States, if a, if there's a beached juvenile baby marine mammal, they're immediately euthanized. They are not brought into a captive facility. Wow. And whereas in the South, there these marine mammals are, are they're they're under government you know government protection, and so the government is who makes the decisions as to what happens and where these animals go, and if there is a place for them. So there has to be a place for them to go. So like with winter, winter was was wrapped in a crab pot, so it was a you know human caused caused thing that happened to her we don't know what happened to her mother she was wrapped in a crab pot on the southeast coast of florida we responded to you know the distress call somebody called you know it was called in and at that moment fisheries has to has to make calls all over the state you know do you have room for a baby dolphin do you can you take this animal can you care for this animal can you rehab it and 
if there's a place great that's willing to do that because it also costs a lot of money and a lot of manpower you know it's like having a child yeah beatings every two hours a gigantic child a gigantic child <laughs> and so if there's no facility to, to take these animals and they then they're euthanized and that's a bad day at the office yeah and so it does that that's interesting i mean yeah let's talk about this for a little bit then because it, how you were saying about the controversy with with mm-hmm. blackfish and whatever i i guess you might see a different side which is like sea world or something like that might not be the best for these animals but at least the animal is not euthanized is that like part of the other argument i guess that, that's part of it and i think you know and and that's that you know you, you take a place like sea world uh, you know I don't have the statistics, you know, I, I know a lot of people that work at SeaWorld and they're, they're great people and they love those animals. But a lot of those animals, if not all of them, were born in captivity. To take an animal like that and put it into the wild would be cruel. It, it, they just, you know, they have instincts, but they have instincts to a certain point. It'd be like taking your dog and throwing him out in the woods and saying, go forth and have hang fun. Hang out with wolves right now, yeah. And, and hang out. And it's it's... You know, it, it's a really it's a, it's an ethical debate and I and I get both sides. And, you know, for someone like me, of course, it, of course, you want the animals in the wild. I mean, that's where that's where they belong. That's where they, these animals swim hundreds of miles a day. But it's not always an option. It's not always a realistic option for these animals. And it's not always a, a safe option yeah. either. Yeah. So, you know, you take, you know, coming back, you take an animal like winter. Well, this was a human caused problem, and my personal feelings are human caused it. So now we have a responsibility to that animal to make it right and give them a chance at survival, and absolutely, and, and make them an ambassador of the oceans, and and use you know use that information to educate people. Don't don't throw your garbage in the ocean. Don't you know? Don't take your fishing line and leave it there so an animal can choke on it because I've seen that too, and. And it's it's a sad situation, but you can I think in, in anything you can always turn it into a positive, and you know so these animals aren't there in vain. You know they you can do right by them by you know helping future generations and giving them a good life and giving them you know the the, the best absolute care possible. And I think that anyone that's in this industry, that's what they're trying to do. And you know no one no one goes goes into either marine biology or, or marine veterinary medicine or 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 any you know related career because they hate animals because i tell you what the pay is not great yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is it, it's it's a labor of love and it's a passion and it's you know everyone has their different reasons but it's it, you know the people there there's a lot of people that that have dedicated their lives to these animals on so many different levels and it's it's a thankless job it, it really is but it's it's a pretty pretty wonderful thing when you you can you can help help a wild animal or or you know an, an animal that's in your care that's really looking at you and, and needs someone to care to take care of it and give it the love and the nutrition and the attention and the medical care that 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 it needs yeah. so Definitely. That's beautiful. What, so someone with your, like actually being in the field and with your expertise and knowledge, like, I guess what, what is your stance on this stuff then? I mean, if you're okay with sharing that, like what, what do you think the ideal 
solution the ideal practical solution is obviously the ideal solution is nobody is ever you know cutting their fishing line or whatever and these animals aren't right. having problems to begin with but what what is the practical idea solution for once we do find these animals in in pain well you know uh, as a as a vet i can only put on my vet hat now because i have so many so many different hats in my life but <laughs> you know i took an oath to do no harm and i and that's that holds true with no matter what animal I'm working on or I come across, even it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm the woman that I'm driving down the road. And if there's a turtle trying to cross the road, I pull over and probably almost get myself in an accident to, <laughs> to, to pick up this, this turtle and, you know, scoot him along Yeah, because yeah. he didn't put the road there. I mean, that's his, this is his home. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I you have to look at the reality that, that we're in, in the world, there's development there are there are animals that were have been put in bad situations. There are animals that you know are sick, and it's it's. I think it's a very delicate line because you know there's survival of the fittest, in on one hand. So you know the wild's a rough place, and animals are going to get sick, and animals are going to die. And you know if it's a natural causes, sometimes that's that's how that's how nature that's how they work things out. But I'm a strong believer if, if, if these animals are getting sick and they're dying and they're having problems and it's because of something we did, humans, then, then we have a responsibility to, to, to make it right or to, you know, try to undo some of the, some of the wrongs. And I don't know if we can ever undo all, all the destruction that we've done to our environment and to these animals' homes, but we can certainly help them out you know from from when when they present themselves in that way yeah we can try we can do we can try and and i think the key is you know i always say this i speak to a lot of different a lot of different school groups a a lot of you know I, i speak to all ages young old school groups teenagers college students and you know, I th- always find what's remarkable is the, the little kids, the young ones, the four, five, and six-year-old little girls and little boys like we used to be, they get it. And if we can we can tap into to them and educate them, they're going to tell their parents. They're going to they're gonna grow up to be responsible adults that will make a difference for these animals, for their environment, for their kids, and... I think it's a really an untapped re- resource. I mean, I'm always, I'm always shocked. I, I've been to elementary schools and some of the questions I get for these kids, I can't even answer. And they're thinking, they're thinking about these things. And if, if we can start there, then I think these animals and this environment and this world has a, has a much better chance of, of surviving. Yeah. That's so wonderful. And that says so much about, um, us as people in society that like mm-hmm. that sometimes children can have so much more of a profound and wonderful world view because the the world hasn't like beaten that view out of them yet you know like right. they they can still they're just good good people they're good people well and that's what's so great about having like like a you know i am a little biased but but it was so well done like the dolphin tail movies i mean there was Hollywood in there, but the story was true and kids are watching that and they're getting inspired by those animals. And they, I've received letters. I've received calls from parents. Like we just watched that. And you know, my child wants, wants to be a Marine doctor, wants to go be a brain surgeon, wants to go and help change the world because of watching something like that. And 
I wish we had, I wish there was more media out there like that because let's face it, we're in a digital world. We're in a media world. Kids are on their iPads 24 seven. And if, if you, there was more out there, positive, you know, real life situations like that, that we could present to them, I think it would be even more powerful. Yeah, definitely. Man, amen to that. Um, <laughs> so let's uh, let's get back to the to the animals a little uh, bit. I wanted to okay. ask you what uh, what animals you work with, but we already talked about that a little bit. So can we please <laughs> talk about the seahorses? What is going oh, on sure. with the seahorses? <laughs> How are we helping them? What problems do they present with? Seahorses. Well, let's see. So one of my jobs, and and let me back up by saying that. Uh, being a veterinarian is, is one of the coolest jobs in the world because it's a degree that you can literally do anything with. You can work on any animal, some knowledge, and or do research, or you can, you know, be in a clinic, you can speak out. It's it's really a diverse that's diverse incredible. Career. So I never knew that. So it, yep. just for for our listeners, uh, is I assume that they would know, but you never know. Um, like, let's say you want to be a, a surgeon for for human beings, you sure. are going to have to choose what you would like to specialize in. Do I want right. to be a vascular surgeon? Do I want to be a neurosurgeon? Do I want? And Absolutely. that is then what you. First of all, you have to get extra training in that one thing. But then that's yep. that's now what you do. If you chose neurosurgeon, well, then you're a neurosurgeon, man. So you right. get to work on one part of only yep. people for the rest of your life. So so you're saying right. that if you are a veterinarian, if at any point during your career you decide like, man, I think I'm, I really want to learn more about squirrels, you can kind of go off on your own, read up a lot about squirrels, take some class, like whatever it is that you want to do, and then just start working on squirrels. Something like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, you bring up such a great point because you think about, you know, human medicine and they're learning one body, one specific thing. And like you said, and that's what they're going to do. You're not going to have a vascular surgeon go and give you your eye exam. But as a veterinarian, we are the ophthalmologist. We are the cardiologist. I mean, we have, we, we have to learn everything. And then if you, but there, there are specialists out there. So there are veterinary ophthalmologists. So there are veterinary surgeons and there are people that, that do, that do go and take that extra training and, and, and practice in those specialties, but they could also go back and just be a general practitioner at the end of the day too. That's what's, that's what's so amazing about it. And I think people don't realize like, you know, veterinary medicine is very hard and it, it, there are only, I think maybe now 27, 28 vet schools in the country. And wow, there's that's probably, incredible. probably hundreds of human medical schools. So it's, 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 it's a prestigious career to get into. It's a difficult career and it's difficult for a reason. I mean, just in my training in school, I learned dogs, cats, cows, pigs, horses, rats, birds. I mean, all I've got question. I got a dolphin question on my national board exam. We didn't really learn about dolphins in school. I mean, I knew about <laughs> them. I was excited because I knew I got at least one question, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, we are trained to have a basic understanding of animal physiology and every animal is different and every animal has adaptations and you can't know it all, but you, you, you know, you, you are taught where to go and look for these things. And that's what I think is pretty remarkable about, about the profession. And I have a little saying when I talk to people, I say, you know, I, I am not an expert in anything, but I know a little bit about just about everything. 
Yeah. And that's absolutely true. And, and, and you take like the marine mammals. So I went and did extra training to, to brush up and learn, learn about, you know, aquatic mammals. Cause that's, I wouldn't call it my specialty, but it's more of my expertise. And so it's, it's really a, it's a, it's a diverse career and same thing like the seahorses. I mean, I am not a seahorse expert. There are seahorse experts out there and I have their phone numbers in my phone. (laughs) (laughs) So when I get a case, when I, I used to work for a, uh, a we have a little Smithsonian field station in Florida that I was the veterinarian for, for a while. And it was such a cool exhibit. And we had, it was all native local species and it was a, really amazing educational facility. I had a little seahorse and they get something called gas bubble disease, which is pretty common where they, they, they basically have an air pocket in their pouch and they have trouble balancing in the water column and it can, it can be a problem. And there are certain ways that you treat it. Do you either put them at depth or some, some, in some cases you give a glaucoma medicine so it makes sense, right? When you glaucoma, right, and he, right. uh, there's an eye condition in humans that has to do with pressure. So, you know, I called up the seahorse expert and they said, well, try this, try this drug. This is, this is a glaucoma drug, but it, it's been used in seahorses. And, and so it's, you know, I'm, like I said earlier, I am learning every single day that, that I work on an animal and, and, but seahorses are pretty cool. They, they, you know, they, they mate for life and, they're very bonded animals, and, and the best part about them is that the males get to carry the babies. <laughs> yeah. They get to go through that, not the females. Like There's there's something to be said for that, I think. So, yeah, for sure. And they're just the <laughs> cutest damn thing on the face they're of the planet. They're so cute, and there's so many different types of them. I mean, I couldn't even tell you how many different species of seahorses there are. And who would have thought, you know, something that little? And for me, like what a blessing to be able to help this little tiny creature that, you know, people may walk through, you know, they go in the pet store or, or they walk through the aquarium and they don't think twice about, but that's a life. Yeah. And I've dedicated my life to, to saving, you know, animals lives. And what are sea? I'm sure I've known this before, but I don't remember right now. And that is what are seahorses most related to? Cause a, they don't really look like anything, but B oh, there's certain things geez. in nature where when I see them, I'm just like, like why like uh, it's like i'm really happy that you're here but why are you here and like how are you like how did you not evolutionarily just get weeded out you know like what is a seahorse's purpose and what is it related to oh my gosh you're reaching back to my evolution classes and in school and i cannot for the life of me remember but i could certainly find out if your listeners were interested and we could we could post it online but i'm not really sure yeah for sure i'll try to find a a link to it and put on the website that'd be uh, cool it's a great question it's it's a really great question probably we'll hang up and i'll think oh that's what it was (laughs) in the middle of the night yeah it'll drive me crazy yeah (laughs) um what uh what would you say is the, and I, this is probably going to be a difficult question. Uh, what would you say has been like the most rewarding or most memorable day that you've ever had? Is there anything that sticks out in your mind above others? <laughs> oh my gosh! Just in in my career? Yeah, in, sorry, not in your in personal life. life. Yeah, <laughs> in your career. In your career. In, in my career as a dolphin vet or as a veterinarian in general, or let's go is... with uh, veterinarian in general. Okay. Well. It was certainly certainly not the best day of my life, but the most memorable and, and it changed my life is 
when my my own dog, the love of my, my life, who went to vet school with me, I had a dog, a golden retriever rescue named Strider, um, when he was diagnosed with cancer. And it was the first time that I was on the other side of the exam table, if you will. So if you talk to almost any veterinarian, we cannot be vets for our own animals. It's nearly impossible. Yeah. Basic things you can, but um, not for, you know, for something as serious as, as cancer or any kind of other you know, chronic illness, it's, it, it was, it was too much for me. And it, it was, you know, we did chemotherapy. I took him, I drove nine hours every three weeks back to my university where he grew up for his treatment, for the best care. And it, you know, it wasn't enough. And to, to be a veterinarian and not be able to save your own animal, it's a pretty, that's, that's tough. It's yeah. life changing. And, and when I lost him, it was, it was one of the worst days of, of my life. And I wanted to, I wanted to turn that really sad, horrible thing into something positive and make a change. And I started my own nonprofit for canine cancer to help the people because I realized, you know, I was that moment. I, I really understood what it was like to have, you know, an animal going through something so horrible and the grief and, you know, the costs associated just because I'm a veterinarian. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't get discounts like that. I mean, it's expensive, yeah. but you know, I, I, it was, it was really, it was life changing because it, you know, for one, it was like losing a child. I mean, I'm, this was over five years ago. I, I still grieve every day for that dog, but it also, that animal inspires me every single day to be a better veterinarian, to help people, to, to help the animals and, and understand, you know, really understand what it is, what it is these animals are going through, but also the people that love them. And that can go across all species, you know, whether you're taking care of a whale or a seahorse or a cat or a dog, you know, there's the, the human animal bond is very powerful. And, um, for me, it was, you know, the worst day of my life, but it also, you know, inspired me to, you know, live up to that, live up to the, be the person that my dog thought I was. <laughs> you see that online sometimes. And, um, the, you know, he inspires me every single day to keep going and make a difference. Man, what a, what a beautiful, awesome thing that you started that nonprofit. And yeah, what a, um, just what a wonderful catalyst. I, in my prior life, I had to work with a lot of doctors and surgeons and stuff like that. And, um, some of them could have pretty terrible, like bedside manner with their patients. And, uh, yet for some surgeons that, that had like really excellent bedside manner and you would, you would talk to them, like nearly all of them that had really excellent bedside manner had either had their own really bad health scare or like someone that was so close to them had some sort of terrible health thing, you know, and it, it just changes your perspective about what you're doing and the way that you should handle what you're doing on a, on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. I mean, I think bedside manner is a, a lost art and I think the stresses of life and the job, I mean, it gets to everybody, but what I try to do, I mean, it gets to me, of course, no matter, you know, who I'm, if I'm working with a government official, if I'm working with, you know, somebody's, somebody, you know, a dog, dog parent, cat parent, you know, it's, 
it, those things can all get to me too. And I always have to take a step back and, and remember, you know, I was in that position and I know, and I often tell people that, you know, I, I, I know, <laughs> I know what you're feeling. I know how hard this is. Me saying that doesn't make it any easier, but I get it. And I don't think you're crazy because you're crying because Fifi broke a toenail and it's bleeding everywhere and you don't know what to do. I mean, it's okay. I'd rather have people be a little more, you know, not dramatic, but uh, overly concerned about something small because they don't know than, than not concerned at all. And I think that can, that can be annoying to some people and that can be irritating because, you know, of course, of course I know what to do. I spent eight years in college and a full career, you know, learning what to do when things like that happen. But the average person doesn't know. Yeah. And, you, and I think it's very easy to forget that when you're when you're going through the everyday grind of, of your job. Yeah. Whatever job that is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> true. Um, what is a what is a misconception that you think that people might have about being a vet? Huh. Well, that it's uh, that it's glamorous. <laughs> I think about I think the biggest min- misconception about being a marine mammal vet, and uh, you know, forgive me for repeating myself because I mentioned this earlier, is that you're you know you're swimming with flipper and you're <laughs> you're just you high fiving dolphins all day long. High fiving dolphins, it's happy. You know, especially, you know, when you work on wild animals, sadly, a large part of my job was euthanasia and doing forensic exams and trying to figure out why these animals are dying. And there's nothing glamorous about doing a necropsy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's messy and it's smelly and it's, it's interesting and it's sad and it's, uh, it's, it, it, it is not glamorous. Yeah. <laughs> it's rewarding. And it can be very fun at times, but I think that's the biggest misconception is that it's, it's a glamorous job that people do to make a lot of money yeah. <laughs> and, and it couldn't, that couldn't be further from the truth. And I think this is probably another misconception that people have. So if you, if it's cool with you, if you could let us know this, like what, what is the pay range for a vet? Like on the low end to the high end? Oh, well, it, it, it's, it depends on what kind of vet you are. So if you're maybe a small animal vet in private practice, you know, and it also, there's so many variables too. It also depends on the region in the country that you're at. So, you know, maybe a new graduate can start, well, let me even back up further than that, an intern maybe. So if you decide to do an internship and a residency, you may start at, you know, 20, 30 grand a year as a doctor intern. If you're a new graduate in private practice, Salaries anywhere from forty-five thousand up to eighty thousand in some more, you know, affluent areas or where there's need. If you're a practice owner, which, you know, this these are just my ballpark yeah, guesses yeah, totally. from what I've seen. You know, if you're a practice owner, you, you're you're well into the six figures if you're doing your practice right. And if you're, you know, an established practice, because you know, just there's a lot of startup new practices out there and they're probably, you know, they may hear this and go, you're crazy. I don't make that much money because they're putting everything into their, into their practice, which is very true. Um, you know, you get into to the zoo and aquatic specialties. They're not making six figures. I can tell you that much. You know, it, it, I've seen anywhere from 40 to 80 grand, 90 grand, if you're lucky. Yeah. So there's a really, and then if you're a specialist, if you're, 
if you're like an ophthalmologist or a dermatologist or 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 uh, you know cardiologist those specialists i think probably do well in the six figures and you know they've they've gone on to do probably another four years with their interns and residencies and taking additional board exams so you know it's a it's a it's a very variable thing there's a there's a lot of you know depending factors on 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 salary range and, yeah that's interesting so if you mm-hmm. if you open up a practice it sounds like you can be doing all right eventually after you know right. a lot of a time is put in but if you become a vet because you want to work with an exotic type of animal of some <laughs> sort be it at a zoo or like go to the congo or right. whatever the hell you're going to be getting paid not very much money at all considering you just took out student loans and went to school yeah. for eight years Absolutely, because there's always going to be somebody willing to do that, do it for less money, and that that's that's a shame. That that's kind of the disservice in our profession is, you know, I, I don't think I don't think vets value themselves as much because we, you know, it's it's uh, I, you know, this is a term that's used and and I use it a lot. We get compassion, you know, you're, you're so you get compassion fatigue, but you're so compassionate that you don't you forget to think about yourself. And, you know, people, I think this is, you know, another misconception is that, you know, you're a doctor, you make a lot of money and you're just here to do that. And that's, you know, that's not the case. I mean, there are so many, especially practice owners that they give away services because we do care about the animals because you don't want to turn an animal away because they don't have the money. But it's, you know, sometimes it's, you know, your hands are tied and they have to, you know, people don't realize you know, you know, I have a six-figure student loan myself. As as you know, I put myself through college, as do many people these days. You know, and if you're fortunate enough to have your college paid for, that's a great gift. Or if you've made enough money or had scholarships, you know. But the majority of of students these days are carrying really heavy loans, and they're not going away. And on on a on a veterinarian salary, it's going to take a long time to to pay those down. And so it's 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 tough and it's a challenge and I think people forget that this this is our job this is how we survive and make a living and it it doesn't mean we don't care about animals if we're not going to you know fix your animal for free we, we you know we, we can't we can't physically you yeah, know it's like definitely. saying my glasses broke you know fix them I can't afford it or I can't see you know you, you go to to an eyeglass store they're going to look at you like you have three heads yeah <laughs> yeah definitely. <laughs> Um, so it's 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 tough because you know our instinct is 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 to help these animals and but it is your it's it's, it's you got to pay the rent too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's and that's the be reality hard. of it. So it's 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 definitely a challenge. Yeah. So, Dr. Julie, let's uh, let's wind this thing down and try to give people <laughs> some advice. So, what sure. um what advice would you give to someone that wanted to get started um, down the path of being a veterinarian of any kind? Well, uh, do your research. I I always say, you know, volunteering has always been a huge part of my life. Volunteer at your local humane society. If you if you want to be an aquatic vet, go to your local aquarium. You know, look for look for internship opportunities. Try to learn and educate yourself as much as possible, because to make sure this is really what you want to do. Because it's a huge commitment. It's a huge educational commitment. It's a huge financial commitment. So you, you you don't want to start down a path that it, that you're not interested in 
because you didn't know ahead of time. So um, I think that's really important. Uh, volunteer and, and, and ask questions, ask a lot of questions. I'm constantly, I'm still asking questions and I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. Um, Th- that's awesome. Cause you, you actually just basically answered my, my completely final question too, which was <laughs> advice for people that maybe are a little bit older and they, you know, they have a career so that, and they don't really want to switch careers, but they just want to play with sea animals or like, you know, just kind of hang out and do some stuff. So yep. just same thing, I guess, volunteer. Yeah. There, there are so many volunteers opportunities out there because there are not a lot of paying jobs. I mean, that's something I've always said in my life, you know, I, I may not be able to get paid to, to be a dolphin vet my whole life, but it's, it's a part of who I am. It's part of my life, and I always want to lend my services on some level. And if I can get paid for it, great. And, you know, there are, there are organizations, there are, there are stranding networks on different, depending on where you live. You know, you're, you're in San Francisco. The Marine Mammal Center has a huge volunteer network um, that they, they rely very heavily on. And, just like anything, you have to work your way up to, to get to do the really fun and cool stuff, but it's, it's worth it. And you can be involved and it doesn't have to be your career. You can, you can make a difference and, and help out because they're, you know, these organizations are usually struggling. They're usually nonprofits and and they need the help and they need good, good people that are compassionate and care and hard workers. And maybe then you really can just high five a dolphin. You don't have to do all the crazy work that you're doing. There you go. You sure can. Cool. Awesome. Dr. Julie, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I completely forgot at the end of the interview to have Dr. Julie let us all know where we can find her and her charity. So I wanted to let you all know right now. You can find her on Facebook at Dr. Julie. You can find her at on Twitter at Dolphin Doc, D-O-L-P-H-I-N-D-O-C. You can find her on Instagram at Dolphin Doc 12. And her uh, the the Cancer Foundation for Dogs that she mentioned during the um, during the interview is the Strider Cancer Foundation, which helps dogs and the families of dogs that are diagnosed with cancer. Um, and that can be found at wagstrong.org. Thanks so much.